Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, on to the pod. Uh, we're going to finish up, like Mindy said, we're going to finish up the book of Esther today, and we're going to finish up chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Esther. These all kind of go together. Um, and as we get into these chapters, these, these are kind of difficult. I don't know if you've actually read through the book. If you're new with us, you, you probably haven't. Um, but if you've been following along, you might have read through these last chapters, and they can be really hard. It can be really difficult. There's a lot of violence at the end of Esther. And there's also a lot of celebration, which is something that we don't usually put together, violence and celebration. And yet we find them here married in the end of the book of Esther. And I think this challenges us. It challenges us in our sensibilities. It challenges us in the way we think about God. It challenges us in the way we think about our relationships with each other and with the world. I mean, how, how often just... You know, by a show of hands, you don't have to actually raise your hands. But how often do you sit and just ponder God's judgment and wrath? How, how often do you just sit and, and you really just ruminate on and feel, get all the warm fuzzies when you think about God's judgment and wrath? It's not, it's not a pretty thing that we want to talk about. It's not something we really want to, want to set our minds on very often. And yet, that's what these last chapters of Esther bring us to. They bring us to a place where we have to reckon with God's righteous judgment and God's righteous wrath against his enemies. Again, not a subject we're necessarily comfortable with, but something that's absolutely necessary. We don't like to think of God as judgmental. I remember, or as judging, I I remember one time I was working at Home Depot when I was in seminary. Early on, we had just moved out of the city of Boston, moved to another town, uh, and so I just needed something to kind of fill the gap. So I was working at Home Depot for a while, and I remember one day distinctly, I was working, (laughs) I worked in flooring. I loved working in flooring because I got to move boxes of tile all day long, and you know, you want to make my heart happy? Give me some physical labor to do. I just, I love physical labor. Um, And so I was moving boxes of tile, and I was underneath one of the racks, you know, kind of hiding, couldn't be seen, and I heard a woman, one of my coworkers walked by me. She was yelling at another person, um, only God can judge me, and he doesn't. And I was like, whoa, really? Is that, is that right? Is that how you think of God? Only God can judge me, and he chooses not to. That's not who God is. Well, let me, let me give you a preview, right, of where we're going. That's not God. It's true that only God can truly judge you, not because God doesn't judge, but because only God judges rightly and truly. Now, many of us would like a God that doesn't judge, or we think we would like a God that doesn't judge. We think we would like a God that just lets everything go. But the same people who would like a God who doesn't judge them really want God to judge others. They really want God to judge evil. The same people who would like to believe in a God who doesn't judge when it comes to them and their faults also complain that God doesn't do anything about evil in the world. And you can't have both. Either God is holy and just and righteous and truly does judge wrong 
out there and in me, or God doesn't judge at all and is unrighteous, is not just. A God who doesn't judge, a God who has no wrath toward evil and toward wrongdoing, is not a good God, is not a just God. Every single one of us, if we really search our hearts, actually wants a God who judges. And we want a God who judges rightly and justly. The problem is when we turn a mirror on ourselves, we're not right and good and just. And so when God's judgment comes down, we know if we're honest with ourselves, if God judges us honestly and rightly and truly, that we'll be on the wrong side of his judgment. That's the big problem we have with God's judgment. That's the big problem we have with God's justice. We all want a God who judges everything except me and the people I love. But that's not who God is. God must be consistent. God must have integrity. And a God who judges everybody else but me is not just, does not have integrity, cannot be good and righteous. And so we come here to these scriptures and we, and we read this story at the end of Esther. And we find here a God who judges evil. Now, here's what's happening. So far in the book of Esther, we had King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus, whichever one you want to call him. King Xerxes, early on in the book, deposed his wife, the queen of Persia, and he had to find another one. And so he had all the beautiful young women of the, of the uh, empire rounded up and brought to him to be part of his harem so he could abuse them and eventually choose a new wife. And he did, and that woman happened to be a woman named Esther, a Jewish woman whose cousin Mordecai had raised her because she was an orphan. And then some point later, this guy Haman, who worked for the king, who was one of the officials, came to the king and said, hey, King Ahasuerus, there's this group of people living among our people, these Jewish people, and they're a danger to us. They don't follow our laws. They could prove disastrous and dangerous for our people. And I want you to write a decree to destroy them all. And the king said, sure, why not, Haman? So Haman writes up this decree for the destruction of the Jewish people. It's supposed to happen on the 13th day of the 12th month of the year, the month of Adar. And then we have all of the action of Esther, where Esther is encouraged by Mordecai to go to the king and ask the king to get rid of this decree for the destruction of the Jewish people, because Esther is Jewish, Mordecai is Jewish, and this decree is unjust. We have the the drama that plays out between Queen Esther and King Xerxes and Haman. And finally, in the last chapter, we saw the downfall of Haman, where Esther confronts Haman in front of the king and says, Haman has written this decree for the destruction of my people, king. Would you please get rid of that decree? The king goes out because he's angry. The king comes back in and finds that Haman has fallen on Esther. He's like pleading with her and he trips and he falls. And the king thinks he's trying to molest Esther. And so the king has Haman killed right then and there. And that's where we ended chapter 7, with the death of Haman, the death of the enemy of the Jews. And when we open in chapter 8, the problem is that there's still this decree out there for the destruction of the Jewish people. Now, that decree is nine months away. They've still got time. And so Esther goes to the king. She's given the estate of Haman. The king gives Esther the estate of Haman and all of his possessions and all of his servants and all of his wealth. And then the queen comes to the king and crying and bowing before him says, but would you please get rid of this evil decree for the destruction of the Jewish people, of my people? And the king says to Esther and to Mordecai, 
Esther's cousin who had once saved the king's life. The king says to Esther and Mordecai, write up anything you want and send it out. But remember that a decree written in my hand can never be revoked. So what he's saying there is that I can't revoke the earlier decree. I can't pull it back. I can't go back on my word. And so that has to stand. But here's what you can do. What Esther and Mordecai decide to do is they write up a a new decree in the king's name with the king's ring that says, hey, Jewish people, when that 13th day of the month of Adar comes around, you can defend yourselves. You are authorized to arm yourselves and defend yourselves should anyone come to attack you. And Esther and Mordecai send this out to everybody nine months before the day. Nine months before the day that was decreed for the destruction of the Jewish people. That's very important. And we read that this decree goes out in every language to every people group in the entire empire of Persia. So it goes out to everybody. Everybody knows now that on the 13th month of Adar, there are two decrees. One, that the Jewish people should be destroyed. And two, that the Jewish people may use any means at their disposal to defend themselves and to destroy the people who try to destroy them. And so basically you get these two decrees going out for civil war. And we read that as these decrees go out across the empire, people begin to fear the Jewish people. Because they know that these Jewish people now have authorization to defend themselves in any way. And we read that the officials across the empire and all kinds of people begin to fear the Jews. They don't want to hurt the Jewish people. They don't want to mess with the Jewish people because these people have the king's authorization to defend themselves. Even to the extent, even to the point that some of the people, some of the Gentile, non-Jewish people begin to identify as Jews so that they're off the radar. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm Jewish. I'm Jew- don't mess with me, I'm Jewish. And so everybody in the empire has zero excuse to not know what's going on nine months before the day is decreed. And so that's chapter 8. And then we come to chapter 9, and we start to read what happens on that day, on the 13th day of the month of Adar. Nine months after this decree for for the defense of the Jewish people comes out. And we read that on that day, the Jewish people of Persia arm themselves and that they annihilate the people who were enemies to them. They annihilate the people who were standing opposed to them. And we can read that and we can go, ooh, man, what do you do with that? What do you do with that kind of violence? We read that somewhere on the order of 75,000 people were killed on the 13th of Adar across the Persian Empire. And and it messes with our sensibilities. It messes with our sense of justice, doesn't it? It can can cause us some some dissonance in our minds and in our hearts. Like, why would God's people be authorized to be so brutal? And that's where we have to go back and remind ourselves that the people of the empire had nine months that the officials of the empire were afraid of the Jewish people. They were trying to honor the Jewish people. The people across the empire were beginning to identify as Jewish so that they wouldn't be targeted. The people who, at the end of all of that, the people who on the 13th of Adar were still armed and ready to go after Jewish people were never going to change their minds. They were solidified in their hatred of the Jewish people. 
They were never going to be any different. And so, when that day comes, the people who have chosen not to lay down their arms, the people who have chosen to still stand up and to attack the Jewish people, now become just targets. Now it's hard, right? The justice here lies in all of those months of preparation. The justice here lies in all of that time. The justice lies in the response of the officials of the Persian Empire that are telling people, hey, don't mess with the Jewish people. Don't mess with them. And if after all of that and all of that time, these people still want to go after the Jewish people, then it is just for them to get what they were trying to give to the Jews. That's where the justice is. The people were warned. And when the day of judgment came, they found themselves on the receiving end. Because this is how God operates. Throughout history, throughout the scripture, this is how God operates. God is a God of patience. We read in the Old Testament that God has a long nose. That's the Hebrew way of saying that God is patient. It's a way of talking about like when you get really angry and your face gets hot. If you've got a short nose, the heat gets to your face and you start to act in anger too quickly. If you have a long nose, then the heat starts out here. And it takes a long time for the heat to get back to your face and for you to act in anger. And so we read in the Old Testament that God is long of nose. God is patient with his people. He's patient with the world. He gives ample opportunity and ample warning. But there is a day, there is a time when our patient God says, that's enough. I will not wrestle with you anymore. I will not wait anymore. My justice must come. My justice must be done. And so even God's long nose eventually gets to the end of his patience. And God says, justice now must be done. We see this over and over in the scripture. We see this in Genesis 6 through 9 with the story of Noah's ark, of Noah and the flood. God warns long in advance, hey, a flood is coming. God looks down at humanity and sees that these people are irredeemable. They're never going to change. Their hearts can't be changed. And God's, God's so moved in anger and compassion that he looks down upon the world and says, I've got to start over again. And so he warns Noah, but not only Noah, God warns the people and then says to Noah, build this boat. And it takes Noah years to build this boat. And in all of that time, the people had been warned, this judgment is coming. We hear Noah on his lips saying to other people, God's judgment is coming. It's going to happen. And we see the people reject that truth. So that in the end, only Noah and his family are saved. Could more have been saved? I believe so. Had they heeded the warning of Noah. We see this through the prophets of Israel, through the prophets God sends to speak his words. The prophets come to the leadership of Israel, of the nation, over and over and over and over again. And they say, God won't wait forever. God's patience won't last forever. Eventually, God's judgment is going to come for your wickedness. If you continue to reject him and turn from him, eventually, God's judgment is going to fall. 
And we see God's grace and mercy in the prophets that he sends who warn the people of God over and over and over. We see this especially in the book of Ezekiel where God says, look, Ezekiel, I'm sending you to the people of Israel. I'm sending you to the people of Judah. And I want you to warn them of the judgment that is coming. And if you go and warn them and they don't heed the warning, that's on them. But if you don't go warn them and they don't heed the warning, then the judgment's on you. You've got to go tell them. And if you tell them and they reject it, then my judgment falls on them. But if you don't tell them, my judgment will fall on you. And you'll be responsible for their disobedience. Over and over in the prophets, God sends a prophet to speak to his people to say, look, you keep running from me. You keep hurting people. You keep hurting one another. You're not being a good witness among the nations for who I am. You're running my name through the mud with the way that you treat the poor and the oppressed among you. You're running my name through the mud by worshiping other gods. You're running my name through the mud by signing treaties with these evil nations that are doing wicked things. Stop doing that. Or eventually my patience will run out and my judgment will fall. But not only there, we see this simply in creation. You can go to Psalm 19 where the psalmist writes that God has revealed himself in his word and God has revealed himself in creation. Day and night the skies pour forth speech pointing to a creator, pointing to a God. The God who created all things, who orders all things. The God who exists and who is righteous and good and just. We see the Apostle Paul pick up this language in Romans chapter 1 when he says, we have no excuse. Those who deny the existence of God have no excuse because even the creation speaks to the truth of a creator. And yet people have rejected him over and over. Our God is a God who warns. God is a God of justice. God is a God of judgment. God is a God who brings wrath against evil and sin. But our God patiently endures with our sin. He patiently endures. And our temptation is to look at the times when God brings judgment and then judge God and say, wait a minute, hold up. You're supposed to be all patient and merciful and gracious, and yet you judged. You brought judgment down. And we pay no mind to the great patience of our God and to the mercy and grace he's given us in forewarning us over and over and over and giving us so many opportunities to turn to him. So many opportunities to look at him and say, yes, you're the God of creation. You're the God who exists. You're the God who's real. I give you my life. And so we we don't pay attention to God's patience. We only pay attention to the instances of God's judgment. And that's where we get mixed up. That's where our desire for a God that doesn't judge comes to the front, comes to the forefront. But God will judge. And God is just in his judgment because God has in his mercy and grace given us ample warning. He's given us time. He's given us his word. He's given us creation. He's given us his people to talk to us, to share the good news. It's just that so often we... Listen to that, and then we turn our head and go our own way and run our own lives and do our own thing. And we don't pay any attention. We don't pay any mind. And that's what happened in Persia. 
The people who on the 13th of Adar were still armed and ready to attack the Jews had not listened. They had not listened to their governors. They had not listened to the decrees. They had not prepared themselves. They were never going to change. And so we see God's justice fall. We see God's judgment fall. But not only is God's judgment falling in the there and then, on the 13th of Adar, God's judgment is falling, God's justice is being brought about for something that went wrong many, many, many years before. We talked very early in this book about how this book of Esther is a replaying of a war that happened hundreds of years before in Israel's history, where God had come to the Israel king Saul and said, hey, there's this king, Agag, out there. He's the king of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the first people that attacked God's people when they left Egypt on their way to the promised land. The Amalekites just attacked God's people unprovoked. And God, in his justice, had said, look, the Amalekites cannot stay a people. They cannot stand. And so Saul, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to war against the Amalekites, and I want you to wipe them out entirely. Don't take any of their stuff. Just destroy the Amalekite people. And Saul goes to war against the Amalekites, and he goes to war against the king Agag of the Amalekites. Only Saul gets tempted by all the stuff, all the goodies, all the booty, and he takes it for himself. He takes the animals, he takes the gold, he takes the king as a status symbol, and he imprisons the king, and he disobeys God. And ever since then, there had been war, there had been enmity between the Israelites and the Amalekites. Well, at the beginning of this book, we learn that Mordecai is in the same line as King Saul, and Haman, the evil guy of this book, is in the same line as Agag. And so what's happening here at the end of the book is a resolution to that conflict. And so some of the language here, some of the numbers, they're inflated, they're, they're exaggerated in order for us to read that this is a final end to that conflict. That finally the Amalekites are wiped out. All of Haman's ten sons are dead. Everybody who opposes God's people, they are destroyed. It's a way of, of showing us the completeness of God's justice, the completeness of God's plan. God is finally bringing justice for what the Amalekites did years and years before. And so it points back, and it reminds us that God's justice is not just active in the here and now. It rights past wrongs. That God doesn't just leave things unfinished, unsettled, but God will bring all things to their right and just conclusion. God will bring all things eventually into right and proper order. This is a reminder that God's justice doesn't just touch us now, but that it even rectifies the things of the past that have gone wrong. Not just the things that have passed that have gone wrong, though. This also points us to the future day of God's judgment. It points us to the day when God will finally deal with all of the wrongs of the earth. You see, at the end of the book of Esther, uh, we read about the establishment of the Feast of Purim, or Purim. This is an annual feast for the Jewish people to commemorate what happened in the book of Esther, to commemorate the salvation of the Jewish people, to remember that God defeated all of Israel's enemies in the past and that God will defeat all of Israel's enemies in the future, all of his people's enemies in the future. It's a reminder that there's a day coming when everyone will be provided for. This is why on Purim you give gifts to one another, especially to the poor. You give gifts of food and of provision to each other. 
The Feast of Purim is a, a pointer forward to God's ultimate day of justice when he will come and judge all the nations of the world, make all things right, and there will no longer be any poverty. There will no longer be any brokenness. There will no longer be any sin in the world. This is what the Feast of Purim is all about. And this is what Jesus points us to. You know, you may be sitting there thinking, yeah, well, God's justice and judgment is all fine and good when you're talking about the Old Testament, Brandon. But what about Jesus? What about the New Testament? What does Jesus tell us to do? Would this same thing ever happen if Jesus was the king? Doesn't Jesus change God's character? Doesn't Jesus make God more merciful, more gracious? Doesn't Jesus cancel out God's justice and judgment? The answer is absolutely not. Jesus himself tells us this in Matthew chapter 25. These are all, Jesus tells a bunch of parables in Matthew 25. They're all parables of the end of all things. When Jesus returns as the glorious king of all the earth. And the last parable in Matthew chapter 25 is the parable of the sheep and the goats. And Jesus says, when the son of man comes in his glory, everyone will be lined up before him. And they'll come before him. And to some he will say, enter into my glory. And to some he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. To the sheep of his fold, to the sheep of his pasture, Jesus will say, come on in. And to the goats, Jesus will say, depart from me. And each person will stand before the king and say, well, what did I do? And Jesus will say, you fed the hungry and you clothed the naked and you visited the prisoner." And when you did this, you did this for me. And that's the standard by which the Son of Man will judge. Sometimes when we read Jesus, we forget that Jesus himself talked about God's day of justice and of judgment. Jesus himself talked about the day that God would judge every heart of humanity. And that there would be those who belong to Jesus and there will be those who don't. It's the truth that Jesus himself shared with us, that Jesus himself taught us. And we cannot accept who Jesus is without accepting everything that he has said. All of it. In John chapter 5, verses 24 to 30, Jesus talks about this again. He says, I have come to judge. And my judgment is not my own. I judge based on the Father. I judge the way that God has told me to judge based on the righteous and good and true judgment of God. So Jesus himself points us forward to the day that he will judge. And now we circle back around to that initial question, which is, I want a God who will judge out there. I don't necessarily want a God who will judge in here. I want a God who will judge those people, whoever those people are for you. And it's different for all of us. I, the most ardent universalists I have ever known really wanted God to judge certain people, usually religious conservatives. Right? And the most ardent conservatives I've ever known really wanted God to judge certain people. I've never known a person who didn't want God to judge someone because we all recognize that God's judgment and justice are absolutely necessary to goodness and rightness and justice coming in the world. Every one of us recognize that. 
deep within our hearts. And so all of this language of justice and judgment is fine and good as long as we're talking about those people. But what happens when we're God's enemies? What happens when I'm the one on the receiving end of God's justice, on the receiving end of God's judgment? What happens when I'm the Haman? What happens when I'm the one who is steeled against God, who is holding my weapons ready to defend myself against God? What happens to me? What happens when God's judgment turns toward me and I am now the object of wrath because of my own, because of my own rebellion, because of my own turning against God? What then? Well, the good news is that we, we have an answer to that and it is better and more glorious than anything we could ever have imagined before. In Isaiah 53, we read the prophet Isaiah writing to God's people. He's proclaiming to God's people while they're in exile. God's people are experiencing God's judgment. They're in the middle of experiencing God's judgment. And God makes it clear that this judgment, this exile that his people are underneath, is meant to draw them back to him. It's not meant to separate them from him forever. It's not meant to to turn them away. It's not meant to to say, depart from me. It's meant to draw them in. Like the Apostle Paul will say later, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so we learn from the prophet Isaiah and from the other prophets that are writing to the people in exile in their moment of judgment, that God's judgment is meant to turn you to him. And Isaiah 53 says, we read this beautiful prophecy of a servant who will come. The servant who will come and be crushed for the iniquities of God's people. The servant who will come to be abandoned for the acceptance of God's people. The servant who will come to die to bring people life. And then we read in Isaiah 53.10, Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you, see, when you make him a guilt Offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see the light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death. And was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Now, if you're a Jewish person reading this, you read that and you read, well, this is what happens under God's judgment. Israel, God's people, are under God's judgment and they're crushed for their own iniquities. And yet God raises them up. And that's a beautiful picture of how God's judgment works for his own people. And yet it's incomplete. Because we could never satisfy all of the wrath that we are due. We could never satisfy God's justice. And so this this picture of Israel suffering for their own redemption is all well and good, but it's not enough. We need something better. We need someone better. And so post-Jesus, we can look back to this and we can say, this isn't about Israel as a people. This isn't just about God's people suffering for their own sin. This is about God's servant. This is about the man God sent suffering for the sins of all people. 
This is about so much more than me struggling and suffering because I messed up so that I could be redeemed. Then I could save myself. Then I could work off my own sin. Then life would be like a, like a purgatory that lasts my whole life until finally I've worked off all of my sin. But I can't do that. I'm not good enough to do that. I need God to stand in this place for me. I need God to take his own judgment on my behalf. And this is the beauty and mercy of our God. Our good and just and judging God looked down upon a world that would never be able to redeem itself, never make up for all their sins, that could never suffer enough to make up for the problems that they've caused in the world. We could never bring about true justice for ourselves. And our good God looked down at that world and said, oh my gosh, I could do two things. I could destroy them or I could go and be destroyed. And God chose the latter. God, our good, self-giving, just, wrathful, judging, holy God, looked down upon the world that deserved his destruction, just as in the days of Noah, and said, instead of destroying them, I'll let them destroy me. And Jesus came. The suffering servant of God, God wrapped in flesh, came, and he lived and he suffered and he struggled And then he took the exile we deserve. He took the judgment we deserve. He let God's wrath be poured out upon him on a cross. He let all the sin and brokenness of this world kill his body and exhaust itself in him. Jesus took the just judgment of God to bring about the day of redemption, to bring about our perfection, our holiness. When we look to a God and we say, God, I want you to judge everybody out there, but not me. God says, no, 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 I'll be judged for you. And so when we ask the question, what about when God's judgment turns to me? What about when God's just and good and righteous eye turns to this unholy, unrighteous person? If we are in Christ, if we are followers of Jesus, then when God's eye turns to my unholy self, he sees Jesus Christ. He clothes me in the righteousness of Jesus. He clothes me in the holiness of Jesus. He clothes me in the goodness and the rightness of Jesus. And when God looks at me, as much as when I look in the mirror and I see a dirty sinner, when I look in the mirror, I see someone who has run from God. When I look in the mirror, I see someone who has turned his back on God. When God looks on me, he can smile because he sees Jesus in my place. That's who I am. That's who you are in Jesus Christ. It is a beautiful truth that we are not good enough. It is a beautiful truth that we are not righteous and holy of ourselves. It is a beautiful truth that we can't be good enough to save ourselves and we can't work ourselves into God's good graces. It is a beautiful truth that at the moment that I most deserved God's judgment, God stood in my place, died the death that I deserve so he could give me the life that I could never earn. The good news today is that when God's 
just and judging eye turns upon those of us who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. He sees the Holy One of God. He sees righteousness in our place. And he gives us the life of Christ. He clothes us in the holiness of Christ. We who were his enemies. And as John said, he loved us before we could ever love him. And he became the propitiation for our sin, covering our sin once and for all so that we can become the righteousness of Christ. This is the good news. We will all one day stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ and we will be judged on the basis of our own righteousness or on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. And on that day, I will have nothing of my own to bring but dirty rags and the cross of Christ, which redeems me once and for all. God forbid I would ever be judged on the basis of my own goodness. God forbid I would ever be judged based on my own righteousness. But glory, hallelujah, I can come and claim the righteousness of Jesus on my behalf and know that my God is faithful and just in forgiving my sin because he has once for all paid for it in the cross of Christ. This is the good news that we believe. It is the broken body and shed blood of Jesus that propitiate God's wrath, that turn God's glad eye toward us, that give us access to the righteousness and holiness of Jesus, and turn us from enemies of God to children of God, from enemies of his kingdom to citizens of our King Jesus. And so, every time we gather, as we celebrate that day when God's justice was done on the cross and when his victory was won in the resurrection, we come and we partake of the body and blood of Jesus Christ that secures for us holiness.